John 15, 1 through 11. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he, pr- he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you, have, you are clean because of the, world, uh, the world, word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me as I abide in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my word, my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. As my, uh, by, my, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord. All right, well, we are in the middle of a sermon series through the book of Mark. This passage is not from Mark, this is from John. Let me explain why. We're going to take a one-week break from our series because I was in Atlanta this week at a training for pastors. And instead of just like waking up Sunday morning and winging a sermon in front of you all, I thought, you know what, let's just teach on something I've actually looked at before and uh, have taught on before. So this is for your good and for mine, trust me. Um, So this morning we're in John 15, but I should say that in the series we're going through in Mark, we're in this, what what scholars call the discipleship section of Mark, where Jesus is explaining and showing his people what it looks like to follow him in this world, to be his, to be with him. And John 15, for reasons I hope will become clear, actually fits really closely with that theme as well. But before we jump into the text, uh, let's talk about some other stuff real quick. One of the truest things about the world that we live in today is that what is slow and old and takes a long time is out. And what is fast and immediate and recent is in. The old is passe, the new seems to be what matters more and more. Uh, I mean, just, uh, just do a quick inventory in your mind about how many old iPods, iTouches, iPhones you have laying around in random drawers in your house. I bet together we could come up with our own Apple store in this church. My computer is only seven years old, but that's like 98 years old in computer years. And every time I open it up, I kind of like rub it and hope it get, kicks into gear and it can do what I want it to do. Of course, that's true in the world of technology. We'd expect nothing less if you can't build a fast computer, get out of the computer business. But this emphasis on the new and the fast and the recent shows up in some surprising places in our world, even in our own biology. There is an author named Nicholas Carr, who's a writer with degrees from Dartmouth and Harvard, and he noticed one day that he couldn't concentrate on what he was trying to read like he used to be able to. And so he set out to investigate why. Why am I losing my concentration? 
And the result of his research is a book called The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. And it uh, was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. In it, he writes this. What the Internet seems to be doing is chipping away my capacity for concentration and contemplation. Whether I'm online or not, my mind now expects to take in information the way the Internet distributes it in a swiftly moving stream of particles. Once I was a scuba diver in the sea of words, and now I zip along the surface like a guy on a jet ski. See, he compiles all this research, and he says what the Internet is doing is literally rewiring our brains to receive information and, and to interact in the, in the world in a way that can keep up with the fast-paced, frenetic activity of our world. We could go on and on. I mean, across nearly every category of life and culture today, we find an emphasis on the new and the immediate. And what seems to matter in our world are the things that happen fast. How different that is from the message of Jesus in our passage this morning in John 15. So different, in fact, there's only one command that Jesus gives in these 11 verses. He only tells his people to do one thing. He makes a ton of promises about what he's going to do. He only tells us to do one thing. He says it nine times in these 11 verses, and it's a word that we almost never use in our culture today, a word that just doesn't jive with the way the world works. Jesus asked his people to abide. Okay, when was the last time you used the word abide in an everyday conversation? I mean, when was the last time you heard the word abide in everyday conversation outside of the Bible? The only time, the most famous use of the word abide, the only time I've ever really heard it is in the famous uh, movie from the Coen brothers, The Big Lebowski. And some of you are nodding like you know what I'm talking about. Others of you have no idea what we're talking about. Now I've just lost you. Hang with me. So the, the classic line from The Big Lebowski is, the dude abides, okay? Uh, Jeff Bridges plays the dude who's caught up in a course of crazy events by sheer accident. It involves kidnapping, murder, uh, nihilists who are hunting down him and his bowling buddies, intending to do them harm. Life is chaos, but throughout the film... The refrain is, the dude abides. In other words, he's still here. Okay, you haven't gotten rid of him yet. He's still alive. He survives. He endures to the end. He has clung to life. The dude abides. Now, when Jesus gave this command, I don't think he used the word dude, although I'm not a Greek scholar, so it could be somewhere deep in there. But Jesus is saying, my disciples... The thing they do, the one thing is they abide. Followers of Jesus stick it out. They stay connected in faith to Jesus. They endure in their belief. They persevere. They cling to the vine that's the source of life. In a lot of ways, the Bible says that this characteristic, just sticking it out with Jesus, is the defining characteristic of saving faith in the Bible. In Hebrews, the author tells us, We've come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You see, saving faith is sticky faith. It sticks around with Jesus. It abides. It perseveres in trusting him day after day, month after month, year after year. It's faith that wakes up each morning and again 
acknowledges our sin, repents, looks to him again for his love and his grace, and again trusts in the promises available to Jesus. Eugene Peterson is a pastor that I really appreciate, and he wrote a book on discipleship called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Great title. And in that book, he writes, There's a great market for religious experience in our world, and there's little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue, little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations for Christians called holiness. What matters in today's world tends to be measured in Twitter time and forgotten tomorrow. What matters in the kingdom of God, this garden that God is cultivating, is slow, long-term, persistent faith. What matters is sticking with Jesus for the long haul. So this one command that Jesus gives, this central tenet of the Christian life, to abide, it's a calling from Jesus. It's the one command he gives us, but here's what's so great. I mean, here's what's so great about Christianity. Here's what's so great about the gospel. The only thing he actually tells us to do, he also promises he will do for us, okay? So, I mean, look at this. In verse 4, he says, Abide in me, I will abide in you. See, this, the, the abiding, sticky kind of faith that Jesus has begun in you, he promises to sustain in you. Even our perseverance in faith, even our abiding with Jesus is a gift from Jesus. In verse 9, He says, as the Father has loved me, so I've loved you. Abide in that love. So in Christianity, even our belief is not something that we have to achieve to remain in the good graces of God. Even our trust in Jesus is a gift from Jesus. Abiding, resting in the love he's already applied to you is the most basic work of the Christian life. And so what this passage is doing for us is it's saying if we stick it out with Jesus, if we just rest in his promises, the the promises that he's already promised he will help us believe, that's the normal Christian life. What happens next? Okay, as we abide in the vine, in the vine of life, what are the promises that come with that? That's the only thing we're commanded to do. What does God promise to do as we stick it out with him? All kinds of things. I'm going to point out four in the time that we have left here. We're going to just kind of make a comment on each one. There's a number of gospel facts that Jesus points us to for our encouragement, our growth. These aren't the things that we have to go out and produce on our own, but the things that he promises to produce in us as we abide in him. Here's what we're going to look at. We will be pruned. We will bear fruit. Our prayers will be answered and we will find abundant joy. Okay, so before we jump in, let me pray for us again briefly. Heavenly Father, we ask as we open your word to us this morning, your good word, the word that is filled with life and filled with promises, that you would convince our hearts that are hard to convince that abiding in you is the life of joy, that it's the life of riches, that it's the life of um, abundance, And that as we rest in you, you are at work in our lives, producing all the things that we can't produce in our own efforts. We ask that you be at work through your word. Amen. All right, first up, as you abide in the vine, you will be pruned. Verses 1 and 2. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser, or gardener would be the idea. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes 
so that it might bear more fruit. This imagery in this passage is God as a gardener. Okay, He's out there cultivating, tending his garden for maximum fruitfulness. He's trying to get the most out of his garden that he can. And he tells us that every branch in his garden that's truly connected to him, without exception, will be pruned by the Father. Okay, I don't know how that strikes you, how you hear that. Uh, that's not the most exciting imagery, right? If you're part of this garden, to promise that he will prune you, that he will put you on the table, so to speak. You go to work on your life. Here's the thing. God is involved, and this is actually a really good thing, even though it's a hard thing. God is involved and invested in the lives of those that he loves. He's cultivating something in you, and he refuses to leave you alone. He refuses to just let you kind of go wild and see what happens. Sometimes that investment from God feels like great comfort, right? It feels like peace, It feels like happiness. It feels like comfort. Sometimes that investment from God feels like him grinding off the rough edges of your life, him him doing surgery on your heart to reveal something new, cutting parts um, away that inhibit our growth. Here's the point. The subjective feelings of our Christian life, they change day to day, week to week, month to month. There are seasons of easy, there are seasons of hard, but the objective fact that God is at work in your life, growing you up in him, never changes. And what this does, what this helps us with, why this promise is so good, is it gives us a new perspective on the difficulty and the frustrations and the sadnesses that we will inevitably encounter in this world. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians, do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So right now, it could be the only thing you see, or the only thing I see, is the affliction part of that. Because the eternal weight of glory part of that is just so far away and so hard to conceive of what that could look like that we get caught up in the immediate moment. But according to this promise, our momentary pain is actually achieving something. God does not waste any difficulty. God does not waste any suffering. God does not waste any hardship in this world because he, is, he promises to be invested and involved in your life. God doesn't leave those united to him Alone, As C.S. Lewis put it once, regardless of the cost to us or regardless of the cost to him. He will be involved in your life and it will work out for your good. He completes what he starts. You will be pruned. That's the first gospel promise. The second one is we abide in Jesus, you will be fruitful. Verses four and five. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And apart from me, you can do nothing. So over months and years, as we fight to rest and believe the promises of Jesus are true, what should we expect to happen? 
I mean, over the course of a Christian life, uh, over the course of a life with God, what, sort, what are we looking for? What is God doing with his people? Well, here he tells us that he promises will bear much fruit. Paul picks up this imagery, this horticulture, gardening kind of imagery in Galatians 5, and he gives us a snapshot of what that looks like. He calls it the fruit of the Spirit. And there he writes that as you abide with Jesus, here's what we should expect to see. Love, joy, peace, you guys probably know these, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the things that characterize a life of abiding with Jesus. Now, John Stott, another of my favorite pastors who just passed a few years ago, points out that these are actually grouped together in ways that um, help us make sense of them. So he says that uh, the, the first three fruits Paul shows us here reveal a deepening relationship with God himself. So love and joy and peace come from a, a, a vertical relationship with God. The next three are our deepening service and love towards others. So patience and kindness and goodness come to characterize how we interact with one another. And the last three, he says, are evidence of a growing steadiness, a a reliability, like a rootedness of an individual united to Christ. Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So what's the picture here? The picture here is that Jesus, as he promises that as you stick it out with him for the long haul, as we abide, the organic result of that is this like holistic human life as it was supposed to be. This is, he's turning you into the person he designed you to be. A vertical relationship of love and acceptance, horizontal relationships of grace and patience with one another, an internal relationship with ourself without anxiety or fear. So that sounds nice, right? Uh, So when do we get to that part? Like, you know, okay, we've been abiding, we're trying to believe, we're here at church, we're we're listening to the promises of God, we're trying to believe them, like, when do I start seeing some of that, right? And here's where we need to return to this governing verb, this central command from Jesus. Abiding, it's the long road, right? This doesn't happen on on Twitter time, doesn't happen on Instagram time, or Snapchat time, or Whatever in the world the next thing is, you guys can tell me today at lunch. I don't even know. Um, But this doesn't happen immediately, right? This happens over the long haul of following Christ for our entire life. And I think it's easy to get frustrated with that lack of growth, that apparent like two steps forward, one step back in the Christian life. Um, We want to see some results. But honestly... um, we might even feel embarrassed or ashamed that our life doesn't reflect yet what God has called us to. We might feel betrayed. Why isn't he doing the things that he said he would do? God said he would be at work. But here we go back again. Instead of letting our feelings have the last word in our relationship with God, look again to his word. What does he promise? He will be at work. In Jesus' words, he will be at work in your life. Right now, like a gardener, long-term, patient, persistent, he doesn't leave you alone, he will complete what he started. We know this, not because we feel it or even see it, but because we trust his word to us is true. We will be pruned, and we will bear fruit. Next thing we see, 
is that as we abide with Jesus, our prayers will be answered. Verse 7. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Okay, so when you hit a verse like that in the Bible, you just kind of got to stop and say, wait a second. Did he really? Like, does that really, did Jesus say that? And is that really true? Not just here, but six different times in the Gospels, Jesus said, ask anything in my name and I will give it to you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that if you ask anything in the name of Jesus, he will give it to you? I can help you answer that question. The answer is no. Okay, You do not believe that. I do not believe that. Um, none of us truly believe this thing all the way to the bottom. Uh, if you had a direct line to the king who reigns over all things, and his promise to you was, I will always pick up the phone when you call, and whatever you ask for, um, as it aligns with my kingdom, I will do it that would radically transform the way we pray, right? We would never stop praying. If we had that line open to the king of all things. Now, some of you have been abiding in prayer for decades longer than I have and many of us others. We have so much to learn from you, but none of us really believe these words from Jesus, not all the way to the bottom. And James, in his letter, tells us why. He says there's two ways that we don't believe in prayer. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. And you don't ask, or and when you ask, you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. He says, here's two ways not to believe this promise from Jesus. You don't even get around to asking him for stuff. Or when you do, you ask selfishly. You ask um, with a a self-regarding heart. Two ways to fall off the road of this promise. The first, the not asking habit. Okay, now, I'm not speaking personally here, of course, but tell me if you relate with any of this. This habit looks like this. You don't turn to prayer first or second or fifth, but what we do is we plan, and we got some good plans. We strategize. We talk to the right people. We establish a budget. We raise the funds. We network. We implement. And then when we have a perfect design for what we need to happen, we pray that God would grant it success. Right? Prayer is like the caboose of this long train of the plans of our life. We don't ask. It's the same as not asking. Or maybe your habit is like the second one, asking selfishly. And this one is sort of like this chart I saw floating on the Internet a little while ago where it tells you what sort of prayers you uh, tend towards based on your Myers-Briggs personality type, okay? Now, I don't know if you guys are like personality type people or not. I was raised on this stuff, and this probably says a lot about me. I don't know. Um, Like, my parents would give me the Myers-Briggs personality test at various times throughout my childhood to see how my personality test was developing, which probably created some kind of crazy, like, self-fulfilling feedback prophecy loop. Um, Anyway... Sermons are not the time for uh, me to, for counseling. We'll do that later. I like Myers-Briggs. I think it's helpful. Um, but here are some examples. If you're an ISTJ, you might find yourself praying like this. Lord, help me to relax about insignificant details beginning tomorrow at 11.41 and 23 seconds a.m. Or if you're an ISFJ, Lord, help me to be more laid back and help me to do it exactly the right way. ESTJ. God, help me not to run everything, but if you do need some help, just ask. I'm around. 
And then for my fellow INTJers out there, out there Lord, uh, keep me open to other, other people's ideas, wrong though they may be. <laughs> this is what's happening. We're praying, but our prayers are in a constant orbit around that which we consider the most important thing, ourselves, aren't they? Our prayers are just feedback loops. So whatever habit most closely resembles your prayer life, not asking or asking selfishly, probably both like me, Jesus shows us the way forward. He shows us a prayer, an abiding prayer, that takes seriously the command to ask anything, but to do it under the banner of a deep trust in what God brings to pass is the best and that he does not have to conform to our interests to be good. Here's when he does it. Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he does it just minutes after this passage in John 15, when he is communicating with his disciples in the upper room, and just hours before his death. And this is his prayer in the Garden, before he goes to the cross to secure our salvation. He says, Abba, Father, notice the intimacy, all things are possible for you. And he says, remove this cup from me, yet not what I will but what you will. Okay, that is one of the shorter prayers in the Bible, but do you see what he just did there? He, what he did was at the lowest time in his life, in the midst of being abandoned by his friends, hours before his death, Jesus prays his heart's deepest desire to his Father. It, it's, the, it's his real feelings. It's his real doubts. But they don't control him, nor does he try to control God with them. He, said, he asked that his suffering be taken away. Lord, take this cup from me if it's possible. But he knows for a fact it's not possible and it won't be taken away. And yet he still prays it to God. It's, it's amazing. He, he's submitting to his father's plan while at the same time praying his heart's honest fears and desires. Paul Miller wrote a book called The Praying Life. And he said the praying life is the abiding life. One of the best ways to learn how to abide is to ask anything. Just start asking, right? Don't ask for spiritual things or good things. Tell God what you want. Before you can abide, the real you has to meet the real God. Ask anything. I mean, it's a little unnerving that our Savior, hours before he saved us, was asking to get out of the plan. But the real him was encountering the real God, and he yet he submitted to his Father's plan. I had a Northwestern student a few years ago who told me that, uh, she gave me permission to share this. I won't share her name, but she told me that her prayer life recently could be described as like heresy prayers, okay? And what she meant was she was filled with doubt and fear and uncertainty about the future. She didn't even know if she could trust the Bible anymore. But instead of sort of going away to figure out what she thought about God, she brought all of those doubts and lies and fears directly to God, right? She called them heresy prayers. She prayed her lies to God and basically said, help me sort this out. I'm confused. And I just thought that was such a great line, heresy prayers, one that exemplifies this dynamic relationship with Jesus. It's not formalism. It's not a bunch of oh lords in her prayer. It's the real her meeting the real God and letting God go to work on her heart. Jesus has the power to reshape our lives. He has even promised to do that. And prayer 
in his name, the real us meeting the real him is where that happens. His word to us is reliable. It's true. He will do what he says. Last thing. Uh, last gospel promise of the abiding life. I spent a lot of time on prayer, so we'll, this will just be a thought. But as we endure with Jesus for the long haul, we were promised that we will be filled with joy. Verse 11. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. Um, consider how great it is that in the same breath, Jesus promises to prune us, to bring us through difficulty, and promises to give us deep and abiding joy. The joy offered in the Bible is not a joy dependent on our life circumstances. It is a well of life that reaches far under the chaos of life and draws from the source of life itself. Christian Christian joy isn't dependent, this is crazy, isn't dependent on a single thing going right for us. It is dependent on connecting with God himself. Christian joy is a rock on top of which all the other chaos of life can flow across. So which of these four promises from Jesus are hardest for you to accept and to believe? You will be pruned. You will be fruitful. Your prayers will be answered. And you will be filled with joy regardless of your life's circumstances. What's the hardest thing for you to trust in Jesus? He tells you all of these, probably all of them, if you're like me. But his word to us this morning is that these are the truest things about you as you abide in him, as we persist in trusting him as a community or maybe begin believing in him for the first time today. He says, abide in me. You don't have to go out and produce any of that stuff. Your job is to abide. My job is to produce. Let me close with these words from Eugene Peterson, who I quoted earlier, that pastor uh, who I appreciate. He says this, I want to cultivate my relationship with God. I want all of life to be intimate, sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously, with the God who made, directs, and loves me. I want to do the original work of being in a deepening conversation with the God who reveals himself to me and addresses me by name. I don't want to dispense, he's talking, here's a pastor, mimeographed handouts that describe God's business. I want to witness out of my own experience. I don't want to live as a parasite on the firsthand spiritual life of others, but to be personally involved with all of my senses, tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. That's the abiding life. We don't get our spiritual life through another person, a pastor, a friend. We need each other. But what we need is to help each other connect to the vine who brings true life and is at work all the time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are some hard promises to actually believe. We like hearing them. We want to know you're at work in our lives. We want to know you're producing fruit. We want to know that our prayers are heard and answered and that we will have joy. But man, it is hard to live as if they're true. Help open up our hearts to receive the gifts of your gospel. Help these promises animate more and more of our everyday life. Help us trust in your word to us, even when we can't always feel it and it seems unclear. Jesus, be with us and help us abide in you. Amen.